Good morning. We're going to be reading from the book of Isaiah this morning. From the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 2. If you're willing and able, please uh, stand in honor of God's word. Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thanks be to God. Bissy started while I was still in the bathroom and we made it up on time. Can we be real in church this morning? Hello. Hey, hey. Welcome to uh, week number two of the new year, as Jeremy said, you know, if the real ones know, Columbia, this is the, the week number two. Also week number two in our Isaiah series. So if you prayed all summer that we would just be going through an Old Testament book, you're my people, and you're in the front row, and your notebooks are out, and you're excited, and you're excited that I'm doing Isaiah 2 this morning, and you have a little bit of hope that we might be doing a 66-week series, because you know <laughs> there's 66 chapters in this thing. And we'll see, you know, as the Lord leads. So I am going to do chapter two today, but I want to begin with just a question. It's a question I'm going to start with and end with. Um, And it's the first question God asks in the scriptures. And he says, where are you? And it's interesting because like he's God, so he knows, you know. (laughs) But there's a self-reflective question there for us as we enter into our time this morning. Where where are you? Like, where, where are you at? I know there's some of us, we like barely made it in this morning. I know what it's, we, getting the kids in here is a, is a real grind, and you've never realized how real spiritual warfare is until 9.45 on Sunday mornings. So we know that. And there's some of us that are just like in times where it's like, man, my life is just so heavy right now. And there's some of us in here who just have so much expectation. You're coming back. You're like fall season in the house. You were here for the mission series. You popped in for that revival sermon. You're like, let's go. I've never been more spiritually energized and excited in my life. So I just want to ask you that this morning. Where where are you? Um, Because we're not just up here to like give a lecture or like sing some good songs, but we actually believe that the Lord can meet us and speak to us. But the only place he can do that is right where you actually are. So I'm going to pray for us. Just to consider that this morning. Where, where are you at? We'll get into the passage. Um, Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence this morning. Um, we, we've had people praying here since like 8.15 this morning. We, we just believe that you are good, that you're kind to us. 
Thank you that you love us, that you're a good father, that you've paid it all. And so we just ask that you would speak to us and meet us this morning right where we are, wherever that is. Come Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah is a prophet and he is speaking. He's kind of like the mouthpiece of God. And some people would say he's having these like visions and dreams of things that aren't reality. But the reality is, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, it is, it is actually pulling back the veil on what is actually happening. That what we see isn't always what's actually happening, just so you know, okay? And Isaiah, he, he starts his time here, his, uh, th- this, this new vision that he has, and he starts with this. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. And it leaves us with a question right away, right? Like, what are the last days? We've got to ask that right away. What are the later days? Or, 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 or some translations will say, uh, just in the future. What, what, is he, what is he actually talking about? And, 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 and how do you interact with the future? That's an, that's an interesting thing, right? I... Uh, I'm pro-insurance, just to be clear, okay? I have friends who do insurance. I'm very pro- I, I have basically everything in my life covered, okay? Just so, we're, just so we're clear before I say this. But the insurance business has basically made their entire company and structure based on the fear of the future, right? Like it is just covering, just in case something happens, you're covered. Just to alleviate some form of future fear. And that's how most of us interact with the future, the future brings up fear in us. The things that keep you up at night, the things that you wrestle with, the things that, 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 that cause you anxiety while you're just driving home are almost always rooted in and oriented in the future. At least for me, they are. I know most of the things that cause me stress are not about right now, but it's almost always about what could possibly happen in the future. The future. And of course it is, right? To root your security in the future is terrifying, right? And, and it's always been like that in some ways, but then there was this thing that happened like three years ago, 2020, it was called COVID. And, uh, and in, in a lot of ways, right, like we're, we're back, we're like, it's like 2019 all over again, you know? It's, it's back to normal. But something happened inside of us during that moment. Like the, the ground that felt so sturdy, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this thing is not as stable as I thought it was. There's more instability than I ever thought there could be. And it jolted our souls. It shattered that kind of false sense of security that it kind of showed that just in a moment, something, everything I've built for can just be gone in a second. And there's still that fear that lives in us. Fear of the future. But Isaiah, and the biblical narrative at large, is always saying basically the exact opposite. He's saying instead of being afraid of the future, to actually relocate your happiness in the future, in a world that doesn't exist yet except for in the promises of God, in the last days, in the later days, is actually not at all supposed to be a statement about fear, but one of promise. Promise. And when we lose sight of God's promises, we, that's when we lose our own sense of hope, we lose our sense of expectation and anticipation, and life begins to lose its color because fear begins to dominate the reality of our lives. But I want to encourage you this morning that our God is a God of hope. He's a God of future promises. 
good promises, so many promises. This book is not actually full of just instructions and what you should do and what you shouldn't do, but it's just as much about God's faithful promises to us. There's all kinds. There's cosmic promises, like uh, the fact that right now in the heavens, in the book of Revelation, it says this, that, that Jesus is seated on his throne. First off, just think about that, that he's seated. Can we just think about his posture? You can think about that very much, do you? He's seated. He's not like pacing around like, oh, what are we going to do? Jesus is sitting down right now, just so, just so we're clear. And on his throne, he says, behold, I am making all things new. That there's a future promise that one day the king of kings will actually come back and renew everything. That every iota of evil will be completely eradicated by his power and by his presence. He's coming back to make everything whole again. That all of the pain that we carry in our bodies and in our souls and in our relationships and in our emotions, he will make all of it right again. That's his promise to us. And because that's his promise, there is never a day as a Jesus follower. I'm not saying you won't feel this way, but there is actually theologically, fundamentally, never a day that we do not have hope as Jesus followers. Our hope is in a future reality that Jesus is making all things new. So there's cosmic promises, and there is present right now promises like we sang about on our worship night on Thursday, that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Is it endures? I read that in our thing, and it endures, endures, I don't know. We'll, fi- we'll figure that one out later. That's, that's when you say it enough, and you're like, I don't know. His love endures forever. He cannot stop loving you. That's his promise. He absolutely can't. It is contrary to his character and his nature. It will, he will not stop loving you. That's a right now promise. No matter what you've done or failed to do, his promise is that he will not stop loving you. It's a promise. Promise is like he will never leave you or forsake you. His last commandment to his disciples, he said, and I will be with you to the end of the age. It's his promise. It's not just like something that's like, oh, well, God's with me today. Here we go. Lord be with you, brother. You know, it's a promise. He can't leave you. He won't. He is with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death, with all of the fear. His promise is to be with us. Promises like, I will give you rest. The promise of his presence is rest. Not stress or anxiety, but the promise of Jesus is not that he has his arms folded, but his arms are open, inviting you to find rest in him. Not just theological concepts, but actual promises. I don't know how you relate to that word, you know? Promise. Because people break promises all the time, don't they? And we relate more on contracts than we do covenants, just so we're clear, right? We, we, we like, you hold up your end of the bargain. I'll, end up, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. You know, I get my Netflix as long as I pay $8.99 and it's growing. You know, come on, Netflix. That's a contract. But, but, but God is not a contractual God. He's a covenantal God, which means he will always hold up his end of the bargain, whether or not you do. It's his promise. And maybe these feel normal, you know, it's like current promises, cosmic ones, I get it. But the ones that make us squirm and struggle a little bit are just what I would say, not yet promises. And that's what we have in this passage. Isaiah chapter 2, we have a not yet, but kind of (laughs) promise. We've kind of experienced it, kind of not. Let, Let me read it. In the last days, 
The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we might walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes among the people. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer take sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. I mean, think of that promise. Just think about it for a second. He's saying that, that there's a day coming where God is going to establish and build his house on the highest of the mountains. And that thing is going to be so attractive that people will just look around and say, we got to get up the mountain. Come, let us go up the mountain. And willingly, by their own volition, they just say, we got to get up there. And they stream. They just flow up to the mountain, to the house of God, to the presence of God. And that God will establish it, that people from all backgrounds, ethnicities, cultures, they'll flow to it. It's the promise we read about. Ray Orland, he says it this way. He is promising a worldwide miracle as the nations, far from being forced, gladly hurry up to worship him and learn his ways. They set no preconditions. They are eager and open. And he says this, the miracle has already begun. It started at Pentecost 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 2, and it's going on today, kind of. Kind of, right? Here's what I mean by kind of. In 1906, in Los Angeles, there was this African-American guy named William Seymour who had this kind of smallish church. Uh, it, was, it was a real small kind of gathering, and he had this personal awakening around the Holy Spirit. He read Acts chapter 2 in the book of Acts, compared it to his own life, and he was like, yo, this is entirely different. He had his own awakening, and then he began to preach on the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Spirit. And slowly over time, they began to experience uh, what flows after Acts chapter 2, you know? The rest of the book of Acts, they, they, they experience in this small little place, they experience miracles and healings, prophetic words, people being just overcome and delivered, overcome with the love of God, and then sent into the streets of L.A. This small little African-American church, they, they really, they experienced a, a real revival. As word spread, what was happening, larger and larger crowds began to form. And it wasn't just... It didn't, wasn't just a, an African-American church anymore. Latinos started to come, white Americans, Asians, Asians as well. And in a moment in 1906, when, when churches were as segregated as they've ever been, there was this moment when everyone was together. They, 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 had, they ran completely out of space. They had to rent this little building in 312 Azusa Street in Los Angeles. It says these meetings, they continued with this intensity for like seven years. Hundreds of thousands of people attended and missionaries being sent out. Much of the Assemblies of God denomination can find their route back to right here, 312 Azusa. And this is the largest growing denomination globally right now, by the way. Where does it find its route back? 312 Azusa Street. And I can't help but just think, if you're, if you're in that moment and you read Isaiah chapter 2, what are you thinking? These are the days. Isaiah, Isaiah knew it. And we're living it. These are the days. People coming from all nations to the house of God. Peace, not a sword. People being sent out, bringing the teaching and the healing and the grace of God. It flows in and out. These are the days. But what about right here? 2023, Columbia, Missouri. 
we read this and we're like, we get theological. We're like, well, he kind of meant the last days. It's more, you know, he's talking about when Jesus is coming back. And that's kind of like he's not, you know, he's actually not. Oftentimes what we tend to do is we, we feel these gaps between what we read and what we experience and we just kind of create doctrine around it. Like this is why we don't experience what the Bible says. It's actually not at all. Anytime you sense the gap, there's an invitation for us. And, and even in us, we, we, we feel the gap because as a pastor in Portland calls it, he says, we're a wilderness generation. We're a wilderness generation. And the context in Isaiah has some similarities. While, while they... While Israel and God's people had made it into the promised land, they still had the, the exodus heart inside of them. They still had that wilderness heart inside of them. And so they find themselves between two stories, stories about things that they've heard from and about God, but ones they have not yet experienced. The story of God told from time and time again that we just sang about, that was told from generation to generation to generation. It wasn't just a story, but it was their story. And it's a story that's so good that people keep making new movies about it every 15 to 20 years. Some of you grew up watching that cartoon and you are still following Jesus and we love you. Never seen it. So maybe it's great. But it's their story. It's the story of the Exodus. It begins with God's people being enslaved in captivity under the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then God appears to a culturally confused, insecure man named Moses, who he empowers to work mighty miracles until the power of God finally convinces Pharaoh to let God's people go. But these people, right, the freed Israelites, they were delivered from captivity, but they never actually experienced what the whole story was all about. It wasn't just about being delivered from something, but it was about experiencing the promised land. The promised land was always the destination for them. But instead of experiencing the promised land, the, the land that they looked at, that they wanted to experience, there was an enemy in there, and, and the fear of that enemy overrode the, the fear of God or any kind of faith that they might have had. And because of that, they were a wilderness generation. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. If I feel aimless and without purpose for like 40 seconds, I have like an entire mental breakdown, right? Like 40 years. 40 years they wandered. And in an ancient world, that is literally a lifetime of wandering. That, that, that we, can, we can assume that, most, that, that many of them who were delivered from the captivity actually died in the wilderness without experiencing the promised land. And in the same way, there were people who were born in the wilderness who all they had known is the wilderness. They had heard stories about what God was like, but all they knew was the wilderness. They'd been told so many stories of what God could do, but wandering is all they knew about what God would do. And so they had to trust that their experience of God up to that point is not the sum total of all that they would experience. Right? For a wilderness generation, rumors always exceeds reality. The rumors of what God could do or what God has done always exceeds the reality of what God is right now doing. Right? We feel that. I've heard bigger stories of what God could do than what I have experienced from him right now. And doesn't that match so many of our experiences? It's why we tell revival stories, by the way. <laughs> Not just be like, those are cool, you know, but it's to re-energize our faith about what God can do because the reality is we don't live in that time. We live in a, some form of wilderness. And so what's required of us? 
to, to, to not just know him on the pages of scriptures or stories in the past, but to know him here and now. To trust that what God can do is greater than what we have right now experienced of him. Well, the passage, it, it, it uses this phrase in here twice. Let us. One time is, is the outsiders, right? It's in the vision, and the outsiders are saying, let us go up the mountain. But then the, the next one he uses in verse 5, he says, let us. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So I don't know if you're tracking this this morning, but, but we have a promise. We have our current reality, the wilderness, and then we have an invitation. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. That means a couple things for us. One is what Ray Ortland says. He says to let the promises of God have their full impact on us now a.k.a. to live in light of who God is and what his promises are. I've noticed something even as we've done so much, we've done so much praying over the past year, and um, I began to just kind of notice a, a lot of the ways our prayers are shaped and how it actually just is like a reflection on how we live life. Um, we pray often according to our kind of right now problems and needs, which is totally amazing, by the way. God, I mean, he says to cast all of your anxieties on him. You, you, you need to, if you're looking to learn how to pray, you just start with what you got, okay? That's, that's the best way to start praying. I mean, he, he, says, he literally says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. So, so I'm saying that's a great thing, but oftentimes it's kind of where we get stuck. We get stuck just kind of in our, in our problems, but, but I think the scriptures invite us not to just live in according and reacting to like the life's constant problems, but it's actually to live according to promise and to pray according to promise. So let me give you just a couple of examples here. John chapter 7. This is a promise for us. Jesus, he stands before the crowd, and he says, Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow within them. And just like double down, and he's like, This he meant by the Spirit. There's a promise for us that the Holy Spirit would, would so, so, so fill us up that it would overflow out of us, that the Christian life is not one where it's like, ah, oh, just grinding, man. It's always so, it's such a struggle. It's just hard all the time. So much discipline. So it, it is. But the invitation is not, that's not his promise. His promise for you as someone who has believed and received the message of Jesus is that the Holy Spirit would flow through you that you have been baptized and immersed in power from on high, that you no longer have to live according to your own will and power, but you have been given the Spirit of God inside of you. It's the promise of God. It's Jesus' promise to us. It's his promise. James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, amen, I'm listening, you should ask God, who generously gives to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You pray like that? Lord, I need wisdom. Oh, God, I need so much wisdom. Here's my stuff. Oh, you know. Or you just say, God, you promise to give us wisdom when we ask. And I need wisdom. It's his promise. Sometimes when we pray according to promise, it makes us feel uncomfortable. Or when there's people among us who start to live according to promise, you're like, dude, calm down. <laughs> That's not how Christianity works, bro. All right, you just got to hang on. Just, just listen to a podcast, dude. Okay? That's, there's more. 
Luke 7 is actually, there's a story in Luke chapter 7, the very beginning of Luke chapter 7, that, that makes our prayer lives feel totally uncomfortable. Makes me feel uncomfortable, to be honest. Jesus is kind of walking from one place to another. He's starting to gain this crowd. People are starting to get excited a little bit about him. Uh, and, and there's this Roman official who, who hears about Jesus. And he hears about what he's been doing. Rumors of Jesus. Not current experience, but rumors of what Jesus has done. And he approaches Jesus because his main guy, the guy who works for him, his right-hand man has come under a life-threatening sickness. And he comes up to Jesus, and what he says to Jesus makes us a little uncomfortable. But he says, Jesus, listen, I'm a Roman official. When I tell people to do stuff, they do it. If you are who you say you are, just say the word. You don't even need to see him. Just say the word and you shall be healed. That's what he says to him. And Jesus' response, he says, he's amazed. He's astonished, some translations say, at this faith of this Roman official who's not even a, not even a Jesus follower, just somebody who has heard rumors of him. But listen to listen, the way he prays. This is who you are, and if it's real, then you, you can do it easy. It's your promise. It's your authority. It's what you can do. And so to live according to his promises, is to live in light of who Jesus actually is. That he can do these things. Living in the light of his promises and living in the light before God and others. One of the biggest hindrances to us living into all God has made for us is the darkness that we live in. To live in the light with God and others is to live a life of confession and repentance. A life where nothing is hidden, but you walk openly and honestly. If I was still doing campus ministry right now, I'd say we want to be a hot church. <laughs> Honest, open, transparent, you know? All right, all right, well, I'm not doing campus ministry anymore, Cam. We're adults. We don't need those kinds of things. All right. There's no entrance into the kingdom without repentance and there's no advancement in the kingdom without repentance. My favorite sayings, and it, and it literally translates almost everywhere in our Christian life, that the way in is the way on. The way you came into the kingdom is the way you carry on in the kingdom. From beginning to end, it is the invitation to live in the light with God. Because since the beginning, it's been our tendency to live in the darkness and to hide, right? It's not a 2023 thing. That's an all-the-time thing. Adam and Eve in the garden, when they disobey God, you know what they do? They grab fig leaves. They go from naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. And they grab these things to cover themselves up. Fig leaves. The world's very first <laughs> metric of managing your self-perception. We've been doing it ever since. It's instinctual to hide. It's instinctual for us to cover things up. It's what comes most natural to us to live in the darkness. And the funny thing about darkness is it actually starts to become so familiar that you just kind of get used to it. I don't know if you've ever been in a dark room for a while. Like you walk in and you are very aware that it's dark. You can't see anything. But then your eyes, they start to adjust a little bit. And slowly you can start to make figures and shapes and you kind of can see where you are around. When you've been in the dark for a while, you don't run into things. You can see it. But it's not at all like living in the light. <laughs> 
You're still bound to bang your shin on some stuff. You, you lose the, the color that you can experience. The darkness, it distorts our view of reality. We can't see clearly in the dark. And shame is an effect of living in the dark. Shame grows in the dark. It's like a bacteria that finds all of its life in the darkness. And shame affects us way more than we realize. It affects our posture. It affects how we carry ourselves. It affects how we uh, relate to the closest people in our life. Not only that, it hinders our mission. It robs us of our confidence in any spiritual authority that we might have in prayer. If you want to live in light of God's promises, it's really hard when you're interpreting everything, God, life, yourself, through the lens of shame. And so God's invitation to us to walk in the light. The problem within us, the problem around us, walk in the light. So what does that mean, walking in the light? Well, it's a lot more about removing things than it is about earning. Some of us have been like those kind of groups that's like, as long as you're uh, confessing the right things, it's like a check off the list and you've earned a week of no guilt. You know, like that's kind of how you feel. But it's far more spiritual. It's far deeper than that. That there are rocks and things in the way that block you from experiencing God's love and power and peace. Things that you've done that go unattended long enough that they just grow this hardness and this callous around your soul. Or things that have been done to you that root bitterness and envy and unforgiveness. It's learning to think not, not as much in terms of like our lack of personal devotion, but, but everything about us. The way we interact with our money, the way we interact with the poor, injustice, the lives that we've constructed of safety, to live in the light. It's not just giving these things attention because they disqualify you from his love, but they're actually the things that block you from receiving his love. If you feel like God's love is just some distant thing that's a cool theory, confession and repentance might be the way to experience a new reality of his love. And it's to be specific. It's to be specific, to bring the things that you feel the most shame about directly to the Father, Right? The promise of the Spirit is that he will convict us and lead us into truth and remind us of what is true and lead us into reality. Some, some, ways, some of you, that's the only way you interact with the Holy Spirit. You're like, he's the convictor, and that's why you're afraid of him, and that's why you feel a little, little squirmy when we talk about the Spirit. It's like, I know that guy. He just makes me feel bad, you know? But everything that you ever get convicted of by the Spirit is always, always, always for your healing. It's always for your freedom. Confession is the way to freedom. And it's just to learn to bring language to those things, to name it before God and other people, trusted people. Maybe people in your community group or in your family or your friendships that you really trust, it's to name those things. Some of my biggest breakthroughs in my life, in my spiritual life, have been through me being honest with other people. And I know many of us could say the same. Things that we've been carrying for so long, but naming that thing before someone else. It's funny, James says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. <laughs> Confessing our stuff to other people, that God might overflow with his healing power. And you might ask him, like, why do we need to be specific, you know? <laughs> Can't we just generally, like, you know, been struggling lately. That'd be great if you could pray for me. Actually, that's not, that's not bad. That's a fine thing. But I tend to, tend to experience general confession, general repentance will lead to some kind of general love, you know? Like, don't let, don't let me get started on aunt, that Aunt Judy kind of love. I'll get, I'll get rolling. You know that Aunt Judy kind of love? 
You don't know it? All right, let me tell you about Aunt Judy kind of love, okay? Aunt Judy is who you will see on Easter and Christmas and Thanksgiving, and she's weird, and you don't really like her, and if you don't have a weird Aunt Judy, you most likely are the weird Aunt Judy, okay? <laughs> just to be, if you're like, I don't have one of those. Let me just, just, just leave that one for you, okay? But it's that kind of love where you're like, you, you actually don't like Aunt Judy, but what do you say every time you leave Aunt Judy? Love you. See you next year. Hopefully not, you know? It's general love. It's things that are just word. And much of us, that is our experience with God's love. It's a general love. He loves me, but I don't really know if he likes me because you don't think he knows you. But that specific love, that like when my wife looks over at me at night and says, hey, do you want to go golfing tomorrow? I'm like, girl, <laughs> that's that love, you know? When somebody loves you with the love languages, you know, you're like, you know how I want to be loved because you know me. That specific love, you know that. A specific love can only come through specific confession. My, my favorite, I say this at every wedding I've ever done, Tim Keller quote, he says, to be loved but not known is superficial. And then without confession, it's always superficial. Because <laughs> you don't really know me. And he does, but you don't think he knows you. Because you're hiding. And the parts of yourself that you're hiding, you can't experience the love of the Father. But then he says this, and, and to be loved, or to be known but not loved is our greatest fear. That's why we do it. <laughs> Because when you reveal something to somebody and they feel weird about it, or, or you feel like that's, that's the fear, there's no way he's going to accept me. There's no way people will hear what I'm saying and still love me. But then he says this, but to be fully known and fully loved is what it means to be loved by God. Because at the core of what we long for is right there. To be known and to be loved. That only comes in the light. David Benner, he says this way, the self that God persistently loves. I love that word, he persistently loves. Is not my prettied up, pretend version of myself, but my actual self, the real me. And so hear me this morning. This is not an invitation to like do better, but to stop hiding. To come into the light of the Father. You won't know the Father's love in the darkness. And you know what God does when he sees them cover up with their fig leaves, right? He says, where are you? Where are you? And so I want to close with that question again. Where are you? Do you feel like you have no experience of the Father's love? Does that feel so far from you? Maybe confession and repentance is the way. Maybe there's something that you just need to name and own that you've been hiding. Maybe it's just a fear. Maybe it's some shame that you've been carrying for, for a long, long time. To own it before God, to own it before someone else, to invite prayer over those things. Where are you? Do you feel like you're like in a wilderness right now? Like you're like, I've heard the stories, but I don't have the experience. Let's live in light of his promises. Where are you this morning? Can we grow our expectation, our anticipation? Even in these gatherings, like we're not just trying to, all right, close up the shop. Let's put, we have people in the back every week ready to pray because we actually believe God wants to meet with us. We actually believe people in the back actually want to pray for you and that those longings that you have, God actually can meet those things in real time. And where are you? Are you feeling like totally hopeless right now? Like, do you just need the hope of future eternity with Jesus? Wherever you are this morning, he loves you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to encourage and strengthen you this morning but he can only meet you exactly where you are.
and that comes as we live in the light. Come, house of Jacob, let us live in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We're not making these things up to like make ourselves feel better. This is who you are. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It's in our past. It's in our present moment. It's in our future. And Holy Spirit, you pour the love of God into our hearts. Hope does not put us to shame because we've been so filled with the Spirit of God. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come minister to us now wherever we are at for the hopeless this morning. Remind our souls of the hope that we have of eternity, hope in Jesus. Renew our hope. Restore our hope. For those that are hungry right now, God, grow that hunger. Increase our hunger for more of your presence, for more of your power. Give us vision for what our mission is this year. And for those of us who are covered in shame right now, we thank you, Jesus, that you despise the shame, that you wore it on the cross. There is no shame for us in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for us. So Spirit of God, would you make that a reality? Would you open up the eyes of our hearts to believe? Would you give us the strength to believe what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God for us? We love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen.